Hello everyone and welcome back to Atomic Hobo. In the last episode we looked at the dreadful task which greets every British Prime Minister. Uh, that used to be facing Jeremy Paxman on Newsnight. But second to squaring up to Paxman was their duty on their first day in office to write four identical letters known as the Letters of Last Resort. A quick recap for any new listeners. These letters, which will never be read by any human eyes except those of the Prime Minister who wrote them and maybe, if all goes wrong, a submarine captain, will be placed in a safe on each of Britain's four nuclear submarines and will only be opened if nuclear war erupts. Britain is attacked and all contact with Britain has been lost. In this letter will be the submarine captain's instructions, whether to retaliate or not. Of course, no one knows what each Prime Minister has written in their letters, but we can certainly speculate. And let's forget the the grandiose, tough statements each new PM makes about, um, as they say, pressing the button. Every candidate for Prime Minister if they have common sense and know how nuclear deterrence works, will say, big and bold, yeah, I would press that button. Yes, if the terrible moment comes, yes, I would do it. Yeah, well, so what? They have to say that. They may as well be reading from a script. It is only in these letters that we would find their real opinion. It's only when they go off uh, alone to write the letters safe in the knowledge that Twitter or the newspapers will never know the contents, that they can be bold and honest. Because it's just two people at that point. The lonely Prime Minister and the unknown submarine captain. It's just between them now. No one else has to be consulted. The Prime Minister doesn't need to worry about protests and campaigns and petitions and votes. It's just them, the letter, and the captain who, at that moment when the Prime Minister is writing out his instructions, determining the captain's fate, handing him the responsibility, perhaps, to annihilate millions, he might be off somewhere having a bath. He might be ordering a curry. Might be flossing his teeth before bed. Who knows where he is at that moment? On land or at sea, on a bunk or on a golf course, in a submarine or in Marks and Spencer. Every captain has a moment um, unknown to him when someone, uh, just another human being of course, just a Prime Minister, no one special, that person is writing out his nuclear war instructions. And the captain, enjoying his curry, We'll never know what those instructions are, unless the terrible moment comes. Okay, so in the last episode I had asked listeners to send me their letters of last resort. If you were the Prime Minister, what would you put in your letter of last resort? So thank you to everyone who sent me the letters. 
Let's open the safe, which is bolted to the floor of the submarine, and extract the letter. The first one comes from Jamie McTrusty. Jamie is a patron of the podcast, so a special thank you, Jamie. You help keep this podcast going. Let's read Jamie's letter. Captain, you are reading this letter because all transmissions from the United Kingdom have ceased. I do not need to spell out for you what this means. Given that the chain of command is no longer in existence, I do not believe it's appropriate to give you specific orders. Therefore, I am giving you leave to use your own judgment and proceed as you see fit. I realise that this places a heavy burden on you, but I am sure that you will have considered your options should this day ever come. I would ask, however, that you consider two factors. Firstly, to launch further nuclear strikes at this point would seem to have little purpose beyond causing many more deaths. And secondly, you and your crew possess skills which could prove vital in the new reality that now confronts the world. By now, everyone on board will realise the magnitude of the losses they have suffered. Your strength and leadership will be needed now more than ever before. I am only sorry that... As politicians, we were unable to prevent this from happening. I trust that you will act in the best traditions of the Royal Navy and wish to express my heartfelt thanks for your service. Good luck to you all. Signed, former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Okay, thank you, Jamie. That um, that made the, the hairs on my arms stand on end. I think we spoke in the last episodes that the the option in Jamie's letter, that of asking the captain to use his own judgement, has been seen by some as a a bit of a cop-out. The Prime Minister is um, playing a game of pass the parcel, and the thing lands on his lap just as the music stops, but he thinks, whoa, no way, and tosses it quickly to the captain beside him. No way. Someone else take it, please. Or uh, we could turn away from the the party game analogy and look to the Bible. I have never read the Bible, but I do love uh, the musicals of Andrew Lloyd Webber, so I know all the words to Jesus Christ Superstar. And there is the brilliant song Gethsemane, where Jesus sings, Take this cup away from me, for I don't want to taste its poison, feel it burn me. Now, I'm not being disrespectful by switching from the Bible to a musical version of that story. On the contrary, I'm not going to pretend that I know the Bible and so can interpret it. Instead, I will interpret the lyrics from a musical. And those lines, Take this cup away from me, for I don't want to taste its poison. Well, that came to mind on reading Jamie's letter. And according to Google, the King James Bible has that section written as Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And that seems to be the situation here. The Prime Minister is faced with an awesome, terrifying responsibility. And as Jesus begs for his father to take it from him, he then has to accept that God's will be done. So the Prime Minister is able to turn his own dreadful responsibility over to the captain take this cup away from me so in that respect yes it is a cop out to turn it over to the captain but on the other hand 
Is it not the only sensible option? When the letter is opened, if the letter is opened, we can assume that the Prime Minister and much of Britain is dead and gone. So there is no way that we can foresee what horrors will have erupted. It's an unimaginable scenario. And surely it would have to be an arrogant Prime Minister who thought, yes, from the, from the comfort of my leather armchair here at Chequers, I will correctly instruct the captain on how to act. So yes, I can see the logic and the sense in Jamie's response. How can the Prime Minister, from the comfort and safety of normal life, possibly instruct the captain on how to act in a post-nuclear world? So I see the sense in what Jamie has written, and yet it wouldn't be my response. My letter would request the captain not to retaliate because, and maybe this is hopelessly pessimistic and miserable, I would think, what is the bloody point? I said this in the last episode, so I won't go over it again, but the point of nuclear weapons is deterrence. That's the only reason that we allow these horror things to exist and how we are able and willing to get out of bed each morning and go about our day. Because there is a knowledge uh, and the hope that they deter all-out war. And if deterrence fails and that war starts, then what's the point of Britain throwing her share into the pot? The game is up. It's over. So I would instruct the captain not to retaliate, but I assume he would be free to ignore that instruction. The person who has given it, and the apparatus which created and supports and enforced it, and which would ensure his punishment for disregarding it, it's all gone. I assume that the captain can do as he damn well pleases at this point. Nonetheless, for what it's worth, I would say do not retaliate. Just try and reach a friendly port if one still exists, and if they'll have you, and head there and try to set up some kind of life, try to make yourself of use. We have another letter here from Alex Greenwood. Uh, Alex is also a patron of the podcast. Thank you, Alex. His letter is very short and I suppose aligns with what I've just said. Alex writes, If I or the chain of command are incapacitated in the event of a nuclear strike, do not retaliate under any circumstances. Of course, Alex's reasons might be different from mine. I say don't retaliate because it simply doesn't matter anymore. But I suppose others uh, might say don't retaliate because they are appalled by nuclear weapons, uh, fundamentally opposed to them and think they should never be used under any circumstances by any thinking, feeling human. Our next letter is from Geraint Rennie and um, I hope I've pronounced your name properly. I suspect that I haven't. Uh, So thank you for sending me your letter. He writes, If you're reading this, deterrence has failed and Britain is no more. I request you not to retaliate. The perpetrators of this atrocity would by now have long retreated into the relative safety of their nuclear bunkers, leaving only innocent men, women and children. As such, retaliation would be pointless. I do not want the last act of the British state to be an act of malice and vengeance that will only result in the further death and destruction of millions of innocent lives. Please go to the safest, friendly country and place yourselves at their command. 
I hope that you can try to salvage what you can from your lives, from the utter devastation and horror that has unfolded. Yours, the Prime Minister. Okay, I like that letter. I agree with it. The only difference with what I would write is that we perhaps uh, see some noble and decent sentiments expressed here. Do not let the last act of the British state be such a a horrible massacre of, of civilians. So yes, there is absolute common sense here. The leaders, the top brass, will have scurried into their bunkers before this kicked off, leaving ordinary, innocent people up on the surface to receive your retaliation and to suffer under it. And sure, you could argue that we should retaliate in order to knock out the enemy's command and control. So let's strike back and target that. But again, if we're already at the point where Britain no longer exists or no longer meaningfully exists, well, what's the point of striking their command and control? Well, we could say it would be to help protect the rest of NATO. But I would assume America's gigantic arsenal would have that covered. They would hardly need our little contribution. And that brings me to my husband's response. We were having coffee this morning and I asked him what would he put in his letter. He said he'd instruct the captain to put himself under the command of Australia with the purpose of offering them the use of our nuclear weapons. Interesting idea. His thinking was that Australia, of course, isn't a nuclear power, But given that nuclear conflict has broken out, they might welcome a bit of deterrence given that the nukes are flying. So his thinking is, go to Australia or another friendly nation, if they exist, and offer them the use of your weapons as a deterrent. Make it known to the enemy that if they extend their nuclear attack to Australia then Britain, um, the little bit of it that's left, will retaliate on Australia's behalf, with their consent, of course. So in this scenario, our deterrent might have failed to protect Britain, but it might yet keep Australia out of it. Of course, you could flip that on its head and say that would simply make Australia a target. And then, speaking of Australia, we might wonder if there will be much use in fleeing down under because... uh, I assume you know about the novel and film on the beach. That tells of a devastating nuclear war in the Northern Hemisphere. Australia and everyone else in the South are untouched by the attack, but so much fallout has been generated that it eventually drifts and covers the globe. So Australia gets snuffed out anyway. There's an episode in my podcast archive about Australia for which I used some Australian civil defence booklets kindly sent to me by a listener, so do check it out. Uh, You'll see that their concerns weren't necessarily fire and blast and destruction, but hard practical things like the collapse of global trade, perhaps leading to famine, or the terrible mental distress of their population knowing that so many friends and family in the north have been annihilated. Our next letter is from an Irish citizen, another country which of course doesn't have nuclear weapons but yet would expect to be right inside all the horror due to their position right beside us. Again, there's an episode in the archive about Ireland and Irish civil defence, so please do check it out if you have the time. 
So this letter comes from Richard Collum, um, who's an Irish citizen, also a patron of the podcast, so thank you, Richard. And here is his letter. Dear Commander, you're reading this because of a catastrophic failure of us as a race to work together on this shared world of ours. I have no doubt that while we might have some survivors in Great Britain, and possibly elsewhere, the life being lived is of pain and suffering, where death and destruction has enveloped us all. The world as we knew it no longer exists. Those who survive may try to recreate a society, and your crew are amongst that minority that will survive unscathed in as much as that is possible. While seeking the destruction of our enemies with retaliation is our base response, it is this response and those base instincts that have brought this destruction upon us. Adding to the suffering of those who are alive will benefit no one. I am therefore ordering you not to retaliate, but rather you should seek somewhere safe for you and your crew, and if possible, to give humankind another, if undeserving chance. Finally, I am sorry that I failed you, your crew and the country. Now that is a very a very melancholy letter. I I, I felt a tiny a tiny wee warm buzz of tears in my eyes when I read that last line. It reminds me that we, the human race, really have no idea what we are messing with. It's been said before, but we are like children playing with these terrifying toys. We have no idea what we are holding in our hands. And so we come to our final letter. This one is from Ian and was sent to me through my Twitter messages, so thank you, Ian. I've kept this one to the end because it's different to all the others, all of whom argued or strongly advised that we not retaliate. Ian takes it in a different direction, and his letter takes the form of six points for the captain to consider or to act upon. Number one, establish if Britain has been attacked with nuclear weapons. Well, we talked in the last episode of how that might be difficult, because the boat will probably not be receiving any communication at all from Britain, because Britain has been turned to ash. And that is where the the rumoured Radio 4 test comes in. Ian's second point is, gain information from an ally nation regarding the source of the attack. Of course, that makes sense, but as with point one, there might be silence, or the opposite, there might be total chaos coming in on on the radio. So clarifying precisely who attacked Britain might be tricky, might be impossible. We might never know. Uh, Ian covers this difficulty in his third point, which reads, If it's possible to establish the location that the weapons were fired from, then this is your first target, assuming it has not already been destroyed. Otherwise, systematically eliminate the capacity of the attacking country to launch any more nuclear weapons at Britain or any other nation. Do not attack cities directly unless there are no military targets remaining. Okay, the order uh, not to attack cities is, of course, um, a worthy one, but we know that it might not be as simple as that. Command and control targets might be in or near cities, and even if they're not, the immense destruction and fallout produced by the bombs might devastate the cities anyway. Ian's letter then turns to the method of a retaliation. He writes, 
rather than immediately pouring destruction down on them, keep hitting them over a period of a few days to cause maximum anxiety to their military, if this is possible. And of course we see a bit of that in threads when the attack comes in uh, waves. There is not just one flash, one attack and it's done. And then Ian's letter ends with a very interesting point. Locate a country unaffected by all this and when all missiles have been fired, scupper the sub and retire to a normal life. Any part of any crew member in these proceedings to be kept strictly confidential. Crew to disperse and have no further contact with each other. Okay, lots to think about there. Um, We might question whether there could be a country unaffected by the attack and whether such a country could offer, quote, a normal life. Australia, Argentina, New Zealand, etc. might not be directly harmed by the nuclear war, but there would surely be indirect harm. And Ian instructs that the crew, having reached safe harbour, must split up and never contact one another again. Now, um, that's a very interesting point. Uh, You might argue that having been through such absolute horror, the crew might naturally want to stick together. They are comrades, they are buddies, if that's not too sentimental. At the very least, they are men who have come through a dreadful and unique experience together and so might find comfort in staying together. They will know one another's names, they will share a language and a culture. Would you want to be immediately cut off from that when you've already lost so much? You've lost your parents, your home, your wife, your kids, your friends. Do you also want to lose your colleagues? But maybe the opposite would happen. Maybe you'd want to get your feet on dry land and throw off every shred of your naval identity and become a new person. Or maybe Ian is thinking of the security aspects of it. In this new, hopefully safe country where you dock, maybe some people, maybe many people, will blame this newly arrived submarine crew. The world has been devastated by nuclear war and now here comes a bunch of military guys from a directly involved nuclear power asking for shelter. So that's an interesting thought. Maybe the so-called safe country our sub goes to might say, get that thing the hell away from us. So maybe our guys, if they were taken in by this safe country, would have to be split up and become individuals rather than be known and seen and identified as part of that notorious crew. They might also need to split up to keep themselves safe from their own colleagues. Maybe one of them, in exchange for money, safety, healthcare, etc., might pin the blame on one particular guy, point the finger, name names. It was him, it was him, he pulled the trigger. I pleaded with him to say no, but he wouldn't listen. So maybe it'll be that type of thing. Pin it all on one captain, and the rest of you can be seen as uh, Lily White. So thank you, Ian. Your letter has given us a lot to think about, prompting us to think what would happen afterwards. You sail to that safe harbour, you sail to that friendly nation, but is it friendly? Will they accept you? Even if the government does, will the people? Are you going to be seen as one of the people who instigated this nuclear attack? Is that safe country actually safe? Will they actually accept you? 
Would your presence turn Australia into a target? Would you be dragged through the streets and called a war criminal? Or would you be treated as a hero? Would you slip into anonymity and live quietly? Would it be possible to live quietly and peacefully when the Northern Hemisphere has been destroyed? I don't think any kind of normal life would be possible. So there is so much to think about in that letter. So thank you, Ian. Thank you, everyone who sent me their own letter of last resort. I read yours, but let's hope that the real ones are never, ever opened. Now, I noticed that lots of the letters, uh, most of them, came from patrons of the podcast. Um, Maybe that's because patrons feel more involved, but this is your podcast. Whether you're a patron or not, if you listen, then it's your podcast. And you're free, of course, to get in touch and to contribute if I do these shout-outs for comments or emails or letters. It's still your podcast, and it will always be free as long as I have my patrons. I currently have 303 good people paying a donation each month, and that's why I don't make you sit through ads. But if you want to become a patron and keep the podcast going, please look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo, or if you can't commit to a monthly donation, you can leave a one-off tip through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Atomic Hobo. So thank you everyone for listening. I hope you liked this uh, podcast, a slightly unusual one. I certainly enjoyed reading the letters uh, and as I said, a few of them almost brought me to tears. It's such a horrific and unthinkable topic, but um, we need to think about it. We need to. So thank you everyone and I'll be back next week.